Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we would love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And, and uh, like Becky was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. So uh, excited as well to continue our summer series. We're uh, in the middle of a series where we're talking about the attributes of God. And an attribute we've talked about is it refers to a quality or a character that belongs to somebody. And we've talked about how God's attributes, they, they define and describe who God is. They tell us who he is and what he is like. And at the beginning of our series, I said that the reason why spending the whole summer uh, thinking about and studying the, the doctrine of God and, and learning to think rightly about who he is and what he's like is so worthwhile and important is because what we believe always determines what we do. Our behaviors, they're the, the tangible expression of our beliefs. And so when our behaviors and, and our lives are out of line with God's word and his will for us, then it's because on some level we either don't know, we've forgotten, or we've refused to believe something that's true about who God is and what he is like. And so that's why studying God's attributes isn't just some heady intellectual exercise for pastors and professors, but it's something that has deep real life implications for each and every one of us. And that's why it matters. And, and that's what we've seen as we've looked at the first couple of God's attributes. We saw how when we rely on our limited power and understanding or when we fashion a God who is confined by the same limits that we are, what happens is that just makes us anxious and fearful. But we saw how if we'll choose to not only acknowledge our own limits, but to, to trust a God whose power, whose goodness, whose love, whose mercy, whose knowledge don't have any limits, then we'll actually be able to have peace and joy when we run into the, our own limits. We saw as well how our calling to be characterized by selfless and sacrificial love for God and for others instead of a power-hungry pursuit of self-glorification, we saw that's rooted ultimately in our identity as, as image bearers of God who have been created and commissioned to reflect his Trinitarian nature and the reality that for all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have existed in this perfect relationship, selflessly and sacrificially loving and glorifying one another. And last week, we saw how beholding and believing in God's self-existence and his self-sufficiency, the theological word was his aseity, that that liberates us from the weight of trying to hold God up or the fear of letting him down because in some way believing that he needs something from us. But what it also does is it, it rightly orients us as humble stewards who recognize that all we are and that all we have are, are actually things that have been entrusted to us by God because not only is he the self-existent one, he is the uncreated creator and therefore the true owner of all things. And, and now that although he doesn't need us, he not only provides for our needs, but he invites us into his purposes. He uses us for his kingdom and his glory. And all that leads us to the attribute that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is God's immutability. I you guys are certainly getting your money's worth this summer with cool theological words, right? Uh, but uh, immutability is, is a term that refers to the reality that God doesn't change. That he doesn't change. He, he doesn't grow or mature. He doesn't increase or decrease. None of his attributes morph or rearrange. They don't change. The God who was is the God who is. And the God who is is the God who is to come. He will always be the same 
And I can't wait to show you this morning how beholding and believing in that kind of a God actually empowers us to become the people that he's made us to be. And so let's pray and we'll dive into our study this morning. God, thanks so much for you and for your word. God, as we come this morning to think about how you are the unchangeable one, God, I I pray that you might graciously keep showing that reality to us this morning. God, that you keep showing us more and more of who you are and helping us not just to see you, but to believe what is true about you. And God, we just ask, as we have been throughout the course of our series, that where our understanding and our reasoning reaches its limits, God, we pray that you'd be empowering us with faith to believe that what you say is true about you and what you say about us is true as well. And so, God, we need you for all of that, and we just come humbly this morning asking that you'd empower us, empower me to teach your word rightly and empower us as a, as a people to hear and respond to it rightly. And, and so, God, for all that, we need you. And we ask that you do it, God, for our good and for your glory. And so we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, if, if you were to walk into my house, one of the first things that you would see, one of the first things that you'd notice is that you'd see a, a wall that is full of pictures. There's probably close to 100 photos on this, wa- this wall in our living room and pictures of Hannah and I from when we were dating or at our wedding or maybe on a date sometime in the once or twice that's happened since we had kids, right? Uh, pictures of our kids from when they were babies all the way up until today, pictures of our family, of our friends, friends, even of our dog, right? And one of the things that you notice when you look at all those photos, besides the fact that my kids' cuteness has come entirely from my wife and not from me, is that you'll notice is that none of the pictures are the same. Yes, the people, the same people are in lots of the pictures, but they're not the same in any of them. The haircuts change, the fashion choices change, the amount of teeth that people have change, right? The people in the pictures are growing up. They're growing older. Some of the people in the photos aren't alive anymore. And in a very real way, our our photo wall is this reminder of the reality that change is constant. It's in fact, it's often said that the only constant in life is change. But it's not just what people can see in a picture that changes. Our moods change, our emotions change, our interests change, our desires change, our, our goals and our plans, our affections, our allegiances, our thoughts. We are a constantly changing kind of people. And just like us, everyone and everything around us is always changing. You see, everything except God You see, while unlike everyone and everything you and I know, God does not change. He is immutable. In Malachi chapter 3, God declares, I, the Lord, do not change. The writer of Psalm 102 says it this way. He says, in the midst of my days, your years go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they'll be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Bible is a God who does not change. 
But in saying that God doesn't change, what we're not trying to say, and what the Bible isn't trying to tell us is that God is some kind of like motionless robotic statue or something, just some kind of stoic being that just exists for existing sake. Instead, what we see throughout Scripture are a number of very specific ways that God is unchanging. First, we see that God's essential nature and being doesn't change. We talked about last week how God is self-existent, which means that he's not caused or contingent by anyone or anything. God never began. He will never cease to be. He doesn't age. He doesn't grow up. He's not young or old. He simply is. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always been and always will be, and what he is, he always is. And that means that God's attributes are constant and steadfast. He he doesn't change in any kind of quantitative way. His power, his knowledge, his glory, all those things are infinitely abundant in him. They're infinitely perfect in him. They don't increase or decrease. And like we saw even when we discussed the Trinity a couple of weeks ago, we saw how how when God became man in the person of Jesus, what we saw is that he didn't lose any of his divinity. He wasn't diminished or decreased in any kind of way. Instead, he was in every way still fully God. So God doesn't change quantitatively, but we also see in Scripture that God doesn't change qualitatively, which means that his character doesn't change. Psalm chapter 136, verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 reminds us that even if we are faithless, it says that he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. James chapter 1.17 says it this way, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. See, unlike you and I, we, we grow, we mature, we make mistakes, we regress. But God does not. He doesn't become any more or less good. He does not become any more or less loving, any more or less merciful, any more or less holy. He is infinitely and perfectly all those things at all times. He never differs from himself, and he always acts in perfect harmony with who he has revealed himself to be. He's always the same. Now, some people tend to look at the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and and say, well, that seems like there's a big change there, right? It seems like the God of the Old Testament is this God of of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is this God of love and grace. And if that's where you're at, I would encourage you humbly to to actually read it again. Because the God of the Old Testament is full of grace and mercy for a people who are hard-hearted and stubborn and obstinate. He is relentlessly patient and kind. And Jesus himself had plenty of wrath for sin, not to mention that the picture we get of his triumphant, glorious, consummate return is one where he has a sword coming out of his mouth to judge sin. Trust me, the God of the Bible is the same from the Old Testament to the New and everywhere in the middle. Jen Wilkin puts it this way in her book, None Like Him, she writes... She says, the sunshine and shadows of human circumstance may reveal certain contours of his character one day and different ones the next, but his character remains fixed. 
And because God's nature and his character don't change, what that means is that God's word and what he says does not change. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says it this way, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus himself tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. See, the reality is that God never lies and he never takes back anything that he said. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, he says, Nothing that God has ever said about himself will ever be modified. Nothing the inspired prophets and apostles has said about him will ever be rescinded. His immutability guarantees this. Furthermore, what that means is that God's standards are the same. Throughout every generation, what he has said is right and true and good will always be so. And what he has counted as evil and sin will always be so. He doesn't change Again, some people look at how, the New, how as New Testament Christians we don't obey the Old Testament law and we think, some people think, well, that's changed, right? So, of course, maybe what God says changes, right? I eat bacon and shrimp and I haven't been smited yet. Like, it seems like that's going well for me, right? We do not have time to do the deep dive uh, on all that this morning, but if you're encouraged, if you're curious more about that, I'd encourage you to uh, go back online and find our series on the Ten Commandments. I think that will help flesh out a lot of that stuff for you. But, but for now, I'll just say this, is that the Old Testament law was a time-bound and cultural application of God's moral character. And what we see throughout the New Testament is that Jesus not only fulfills that law perfectly, but he shows us the heart behind it. And he shows us what all those things were really pointing to, the, the thing they were all really after. And that's what all the New Testament writers speak to and write about. They call us to the, the heart-level motivations and the heart-level perspectives that the law intended was intended to point us to. And so what God says about himself and what he says about what is right and wrong doesn't change, but also neither do his promises God's promises to, to us as his people are given unconditionally and with absolute certainty. And that leads us to the last way in Scripture that we see that God is unchanging. Fourth, we see that God's plans and purposes, that they don't change. Psalm chapter 33, verse 10 and 11 says it this way. It says, the Lord foils the plans of nations. He thwarts the purposes of peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. Isaiah 14, verse 24 and 27. For the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Job in chapter 23, verse 13 says this, but he is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. He prays again in chapter 42, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's plans and his purposes, they don't change. God's not constantly reevaluating what he's thinking about, where he's thinking about taking the universe. His plans and his purposes do not change. He doesn't change his mind. And I need you to hear this. God is never forced to adopt plan B. 
And one pastor puts it this way, there, there is only two reasons why someone would ever need to or be forced to change their plans. If they lack the necessary foresight or knowledge to anticipate all the contingencies, or if they lack the power or ability to bring about what they had planned. But since we know that God is limitlessly knowledgeable and limitlessly powerful, what we know is that neither of those things are true. And though God can be disobeyed, his eternal purposes will always stand. You see, because God's plans don't just work around our plans. What we see is that, is that they encompass and override human plans altogether. In Genesis chapter 50, we see that Joseph's brothers, they, how they meant evil towards him. But we see that God didn't just work it out for good, but we see that in the midst of their evil, God actually meant it for good. You see, nothing and nobody can frustrate God's plans or override his purposes. Not Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion. Not the greatest, most powerful kings and countries in the world. Certainly not you and I. And what that means is that what God says he will do, he will do. And we can be confident that what he says he's going to do will actually happen. Whether that's to judge sin or to save sinners who trust in him or everything else we see in his word. Maybe you've been reading your Bible a bunch and you're like, hey, well, what about, what about those situations like Jonah and Nineveh where God promises to destroy them, but then it seems like he changes his mind and he changes his plans. And again, we do not have time to do the deep dive on all the examples like this. And if you have more questions, I'd certainly encourage you to come ask me. I'd love to talk more about that with you. But for now, what I'll just say is that in situations like that throughout Scripture, what we see is that God actually is being faithful to himself. As he says of himself in Jeremiah 18, he says, If at any time uh, I announce that a nation or kingdoms to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict the disaster that I had planned. You see, that's what exactly what happens in places like Nineveh in Scripture. They repented, they turned. And, and so if God had destroyed them, he would actually be being inconsistent with who he has revealed himself to be. He would be inconsistent with his very nature that has promised to punish the wicked and rebellious, but to bless and forgive those who are repentant. One commentator puts it this way. He says, as long as they had remained unrepentant and in rebellious unbelief, they were subject to divine judgment. But when they repented and turned to God from their sinful character, God's character demanded that he receive them with mercy. What I hope you're seeing as we talk about this unchanging God, is not just that God's unchangingness is true, but that it's actually good news. You see, and what I want to show you this morning is that when we behold and believe in a God that never changes, that actually changes us. That changes us. You see, because God's nature and being never change, we can be confident that he will always be there for us. We're never going to call on him and find him lacking. We're never going to call on him, seek him out, and find him busy or not there anymore. He doesn't change. And because his character never changes, you can be sure that when you pray, you don't have to be worried that God is not in a good mood to hear you. That somehow he's out of town or that he's busy or that he just doesn't have time for you anymore. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, again, he says it this way. This is so beautiful. He says, What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. 
For he is always receptive to misery and need as well as love and faith. He does not keep office hours or set aside periods when he will not see anyone. Today in this very moment, he feels towards his creatures, towards the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. He doesn't change. And so you know that you can always come to him and can know that what he says never changes. See, we have, we have confidence that what he said, uh, that he said that those who put their faith in him will never change, that we're his beloved children, adopted, cherished, enjoyed, delighted in. Maybe you're here this morning and you might call yourself a Christian. You've believed that Jesus has died in your place for your sin and that, that faith in him is the thing that makes you right with God. And yet when you sin, what you are constantly find yourself thinking is, I've really done it now. How could God still love me? I am sure that he is fed up with me. That, that has to have been the final straw. And I need to remind you that when Ephesians 2 tells us that God directs his love towards us, he did not do that with a limited knowledge about you. He didn't do it with a, he didn't do it with a partial understanding. No, God, the God of the universe, the God who is outside of time, he saw your past, he saw your present, he saw your future. And because he does not change, neither will his love for you. Similarly, some of you get caught up in this mindset that somehow you've messed up God's plans for your life. That your lack of obedience or your failures have somehow forced him into plan B. I want to remind you that the God of the universe, his plans and purposes do not change that you cannot thwart them and you cannot undermine them. Could you imagine God saying, dang it, I had this plan for this person, but they messed it up. All the best I can do now is bring them over here, right? To Iowa, right? That's ridiculous, right? Iowa is as close to heaven as you're going to get, right? God's plans are not overridden. And so you can know that his plans for you have not been overridden by you. And that gives you hope. All of this, it means very simply that God is dependable. That he's dependable. That you can count on him no matter what. One commentator, he sums it up this way, he says, however unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he was willing one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by capriciousness, how could we confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name, he is ever the same. His purposes are unfailing. His promises are unsayable. His word is sure. So our trust in him is therefore a confident trust. For we know that he will not, indeed cannot, change. See, God's immutability is such good news for us. In a world where everything changes, there is a fixed and constant point. And it's the God of the universe. The problem is, is that instead of believing that God is unchanging and immutable, we believe that he changes just like we do. 
We look at how God's word and his ways, we see how they stand in such stark contrast to the values and the priorities and the ideals of our world. And we, we think there's no way that most of this can still apply. It's so old and outdated. I'm, I'm sure God's come around by now on marriage and on sexuality and on, and on money and on our time and all these various things. I'm sure God's adapted for the modern age. It's not his word that we think changes, but what he thinks about us. Like we said, we're often always worried about what his opinion of us might be. We're full of fear and doubt that we can even come to him. And our mistaken beliefs about God being the one who changes, they're often the result of the fact that we have tried to take his place as the unchanging ones. Sometimes we do that hopelessly. We, we find ourselves or others stuck in patterns of sin or cycles of depression and, and we think that there's no hope, that we cannot change, that others cannot change and yet the whole record of Scripture is full of people that God has rescued from slavery to sin and the power of depression and he has renewed and transformed the most heinous of sins into the most life-giving of people. Other times we... Other times we see ourselves as the unchanging ones. We do it proudly and defiantly. The highest value in our culture is self-expression. Our motto is, I'll be as I am, right? This is who I am. Take it or leave it. But the Bible is clear that for all of us, there will be things that we all need to turn around on that feel fundamental to who we are. Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow him. You see, denying ourselves is about saying no to who we think we are and yes to who God says he's made us to be. And so we think God changes and that we don't or that we can't or that we shouldn't. And yet in the midst of all of it, all of us are longing for the security that comes from something that doesn't change. See, whether you thrive on change or whether you hate it, all of us get weary of it after a while. All of us are looking in some degree for a sense of stability and predictability. We just want something or someone that we can count on, something that's unchanging, something that's a fixed point on the horizon. But instead of looking to God to be the unchanging thing that's in our lives, what happens is we look to ourselves or other people or relationships or jobs or institutions or governments or skills or abilities or our wealth or even our circumstances to be the unchanging rock that only God can be. And in asking temporary changing things to always be the same and never to change, what we are functionally saying to those things is, I need you to be God for me. And none of them are. The most consistent people let us down. Death ends the most long-term relationships. Companies, institutions, whole countries, they all change. Even our skills and abilities wax and wane. None of them are the unchanging foundation that you can set your hope on. None of them are. They all leave us longing for an unchanging God that we can actually count on. They leave us longing for the one point that's fixed that we can set our hopes on and that we can relate the rest of our lives to. And so the question that you have to ask is how do you go from unbelief to belief? 
How do we go from unbelief to belief? Well, it begins, as we've done, by beholding the truth about God, that he's actually the one that doesn't change. And seeing that as the truth for it really is, but it's not just seeing him for who he really is that brings about a transformation in our belief. It's also the reality that we need to repent. See, repentance is about turning around. It's about a turning that that involves us acknowledging and rejecting the lies that we've been believing about God and about ourselves, that that he changes and that we don't. That those are lies. And we need to repent of the idolatrous ways that we look to someone else and something else to to be what only the unchanging God can be for us. Or we need to repent of our refusal, our unwillingness to change. Tozer, again, he writes it this way. He says, in all our efforts to know God, to please him, to relate to him, we must remember that all of the change must be on our part. See, what happens so often is that we come to God on our own terms. And we say, God, we'll follow you, we'll lead, we will, we will do what you say, but you have, to, you have to change to our standards. You have to adopt our understandings. And yet the God of the universe is not the one who changes. It's you and I who must be the ones who changes. But here's the good news. When you and I reject the lie that we're the unchanging ones and instead we embrace the truth that God's the unchanging one, what happens is the miracle of his grace gets worked out into our lives. It gets applied to our hearts, and we're not just changed, but we're transformed. We don't just become different people, we become new people. New identity, new purpose, new hearts that not only want to love and serve God and have confident hope in Him, but who actually have the Spirit, by God's, who actually by His Spirit have the power to actually do it. You see, and that's part of what we're remembering every week when we celebrate communion together. So remember Jesus' death on the cross in our place not only pays the penalty for our sins, but it's the means by which his transforming power enters our lives. Faith in him. In communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember that the unchanging, eternal God stooped down into his own creation, humbling himself on the cross so that you and I might have the hope and confidence of an unchanging relationship with him. That's not rooted on what you and I have done, but that's based in what he has done on our behalf. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, or if you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you, go back during our time of worship and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice. You can go back whenever you see fit and do it as a chance to remind yourself about the God who has saved you so that you might have an unchanging relationship with him. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, then I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He is after a heart that trusts in him completely. One that proclaims that he is the unchanging one. That he's the only source of our hope and confidence and joy. That he's the fixed point, not us. You see, we live our lives seemingly anchored to change itself. And yet what Scripture invites us to do is to drop our anchors 
at the feet of the unchanging God, the one who never changes. And when we behold and believe in the unchanging God, what happens is that we are transformed. Instead of trying to rival God, we start to reflect him. And we bear his image as he made us to do. So as we sing and as we worship God and remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God wherever you're at. Ask him to help you to see how you've been looking to yourself or someone or something else to be the unchanging source of hope that you are looking for, the foundation that you need. And ask him to help you turn to him as the only immutable one. Ask him to do that so you might become who he's made you to be. But ask him as well that he might sustain you through the ever-changing reality of life. Ask him to change in you what you have believed is beyond changing. You are changeable by his power. And ask him to give you the confidence and hope that comes from knowing that his love for you does not move either. You see, it's the unchanging, immutable God. He's our foundation. He is our hope. In the midst of a world where everything is shifting sand, he is the rock on which we must build our faith. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful to get to come to you in worship this morning. And we're thankful for the reminder, God, that you are the one that doesn't change. Your nature doesn't change, your character doesn't change, your word doesn't change, your plans and promises and purposes, they never change. And so we can have an incredible confidence and hope that comes not from our, our changing selves, but from worshiping an unchanging God. God, we pray that you'd help us to see God, where we are looking to other things and other people to be the unchanging rock that we need. And we pray that you would help us to set our eyes on you, the rock that does not change. Thank you that you are always faithful and always good, that your love for us was not made with partial judgment, but that you know us fully and that you love us deeply and that that will never change. Help us to be a people who put our faith in you and who live confidently because of you, the unchangeable God, we pray. Amen.